Okay. We left off last week. We've been in uh, chapter 14 for a while, a couple weeks, because he's talking all about tongues. It's been all about tongues. In the, uh, and he said that last week when, that there's a potential when someone steps into a gathering of believers, a non-believer steps into the called out. That's what the ecclesia means, those called out from the world, um, that when they witness teachings by the Spirit, by the people who are present, he says in verse 25, the secrets of the heart might be made manifest, and so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is in you of a truth. What that meant was that Paul is saying, listen, if someone comes into a big gathering and everyone's speaking in a foreign tongue, that person's going to think you're crazy. That's what he says. But if someone steps into a gathering and everyone's teaching by the Spirit truth, they may fall on their face and say the truth is taught here and their hearts change and they're converted. So this brings us to verse uh, 26 through 40, which I hope to work through today before embarking on the infamous chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. Uh, we're going to attack these remaining verses uh, in three chunks. Verses 26 through 33, then verses 34 and 35, and then verses 36 through 40 to wrap it all up. Now, before doing this, I want to confront you. I'm, I'm using that word purposely. I want to confront you with a set of questions or a set of circumstances that cannot be overlooked. So we could be sitting in a crowd of Billy Graham, if he was still alive, and Chuck Smith, and I would ask these same questions. And I'm pretty certain that they would have to answer in one way or another, and they would be uh, kind of uncomfortable with what to say. We can't get around that, and it's going to come into play as we talk about some of the uh, uh, things Paul says in this chapter. So we have some mandatory decisions to make when we consider the apostolic record, what people call the New Testament and the contents of it, okay? And you've heard it before, but I just want to review it quickly with you. Um, we have three stances that you can take as a believer. If this is in your way, let me move it really quickly. Three stances that we take as believers today when we read the, the record, the apostolic record of the New Testament. The first one is the literal stance, okay? The second one are, is the exception stance. And the third one is the fulfilled stance. So let me explain to you the literal stance, which we might on the spectrum call this the very conservative stance. Most Christians today sort of think that they're here, but in reality they're here, okay? The literal conservative stances, the apostles set up the church that Jesus established and it remains in operation today. And the way they set it up, that's what remains in operations today. Therefore, everything that the apostles said should be recognized as viable and important now. Now, most Christian pastors and churches say that, right? The result is we have the orders in the New Testament 
that need to be obeyed and applied to ourselves. And this is the very conservative stance. So I'm going to talk about the problem with that in a second. Okay? The exception stance, which is pretty much more of really what happens today. This is what everyone says. I believe the Bible and I follow the Bible and what it says. What the apostles said was true today as it was then. Okay, this is what we say, but this is what we do. That stance is we don't have to do everything the apostles say. We take exception because times change and we're not expected to do everything that they tell people to do or talk about. For instance, speaking in tongues, healings, uh, and all sorts of other things that come up in Scripture. So where we all say we follow this, we all really follow that. Okay? Most of us. The problem, or here is we're all picking and choosing. That's what creates the denominations. When the justified stands, we pick and choose what we say is applicable, and we pick and choose what we say should be followed, and we give all the justifications for saying that. And it's across the board. And that's why we have denominations, because we have some who say all the spiritual gifts are present. We have saying the spiritual gifts are not. We have people saying that women's heads should be covered in the church. We have people who say in circumcision this. We have food. We have everything, right? So again, we say this. We pretty much do that. You know the fulfilled stance. That's the stance that I take. And that is that the apostles wrote to the people then and there exclusively, not having any idea that a printing press would be made in, in the 1500s or 1400s and that their words would be replicated and used. Uh, they didn't, I don't believe they knew that. They were writing to that audience then. And that organization and the order is over. It's fulfilled, Jesus the church has taken his bride. Therefore, the church today is entirely spiritual, as in the New Testament, God writes on individuals' hearts and minds, and they are his people. And that, so, uh, it's the, the church is not in the hands of, of material religion anymore. We can gather together as believers, but it's not in the hands of material religion. If it's not in the hands of material religion, we don't need to worry about all the details that the apostles said to the people then. All right? Therefore, all this stuff in terms of apostolic instruction is over, and there are principles that apply. And the Spirit governs every individual to decide what principles those are. Is Jesus the Christ? Did he resurrect? How does that apply to me? Those things, yes. But the apostolic instructions, no. Fulfilled, done. So there's your spectrum. We could call that the liberal end. The problem with this stance is that while it is maintained today, at least in word, oh, we believe the Bible. Gosh, I hear that from everybody, and very few people really follow it. Um it falls apart in so many areas. And a couple of those areas we're going to mention today. It falls apart. So when this stance falls apart in any way, what happens is people shift over to this stance. 
That just happens. The trouble with this stance is that it has led to innumerable divisions. It has led to infighting, name-calling, cutting people out who really love the Lord as followers of Christ, and uh, it has even led to killing people. We don't do it so much today, but man, there was a time when we were killing people in the name of Jesus because they didn't go with our justified exceptions in Scripture. So I don't think that was ever meant to be the case. And uh, if we're supposed to war against false interpretation with others, then the first approach is the way to go. If, if we're not supposed to twist the words at all or interpret them differently, if we're supposed to be one united body like the Mormons or the Catholics claim, then we need to get rid of this position completely. And it's either this position, it's the Bible, darn it, or it's this position, in my estimation. I don't see any, any reason how we can have this middle position relative to Scripture. Um, the problem with that final view, though, is that it relegates much of the narrative to Christian history. And for many, that's just not viable. They say, no, we are still in the Christian church, apostolic church era. And this stance is, uh, so it's really resisted by most people, especially pastors who teach the word and have a church. They need something more substantive than to say it's all fulfilled. So they move here, but they claim here. Okay, is that all understood? Excellent. Thank you for your nods and applause. Now, remembering these three stances uh, that Christians really are forced to make, whether you're making it cognitively or not, we are forced to make them. Let's cover the first chunk of verses 26 through 33. <laughs> Paul says, how is it then, brethren? When you come together, every one of you has a psalm, has a doctrine, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done to edification. If any man speak in an unknown tongue, let it be by two, or at the most three, and that by course, and let one interpret. But if there be no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church, and let him speak to himself and to God. Let the prophets speak two or three, and let the other judge. If anything be revealed to another that sitteth by, let the first hold his peace. For ye all may prophesy one by one, that all may learn and all may be comforted. And the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all churches of the saints. Okay, so there's the first chunk. And it seems that in verse 26, Paul lays out the scene there in Corinth regarding the exercising of spiritual gifts that was present then. And so he says, how is it, brethren, when you come together, every one of you has a song, has a doctrine, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done unto edifying. In other words, brethren, what's going on over there? It really is kind of what he's saying. How is it when the called out from the world come together, every one of you, which sounds like hyperbole, 
It's like when campus gets together, how is it that every one of you have a song, have a revelation, have a tongue, have an interpretation? How is it, Paul says, how is it that that is happening in this crazy place? That every one of you have, and we get the laundry list here. He says, you have a song. He's talked about singing in tongues. He could be talking about that. So some of you have a song. In fact, Ken had a song this morning for us. He walked in and bellowed the song. Paul was talking to that. How is it that every one of you have something spiritual to bring to this, this thing? You have a song. You have a doctrine. You have a tongue, an unknown tongue. You have a revelation. You have an interpretation of the tongue. In other words, it sounds like Paul is describing a religious circus here. It's a circus, and so he adds, let all things be done to edifying, okay? Uh, at this point, he now lays the rules out. He gives them rules on, on what should be going on in the spirit-filled church. The idea is, in that day, the church was rife with the spirit and spiritual gifts as a means to get those people who didn't have the written word in terms of the, uh, the apostolic record, to keep them unified and strengthened as they were going through this tumultuous period. And so they were full of these spiritual gifts, but it was out of control. So at verse 27, he says, first rule, if any man speaks in an unknown tongue, let it be by two, or at the most by three, and that by course, let one interpret. Now, because it seems probable that many were endowed with the gift of speaking in tongues, remember because of where Corinth was situated and the gospel was to go out, and so they're all interpreting, uh, speaking with other people's tongues. Um, it seems like he's limiting the expression of tongues in gatherings of believers to the day, once or twice. That seems to be what he's saying. He says, those who speak in unto, let it be by two or at the most three when you get together. That's inferred. We don't know that, but it seems like that's what he's saying. Stop it with the whole thing being about this. In other words, remember he said earlier in the past few weeks, if someone has the spirit on them and they speak by tongues, don't do it. So he's saying, even if you have the ability to do something by the spirit, he's saying, let it be two or three right there. He says, limit it. No craziness here, right? So he's clearly shown in last week's teaching that the expression for, uh, of tongues was for the unbelievers. He makes this perfectly clear, but he still allows for that gift to be present among believers if there's an interpreter. And he says, let it be done two or three times um, with an interpreter. This advice slows everything down in Corinth. The letter from the apostle. Bring it down. Then he adds verse 28. But if there be no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church. Boom. And let him speak to himself and to God. Meaning, keep it to yourself. Let the tongues roll out of your mind and in your heart. Talk to God, but be silent in the church if there's no interpreter. Then he adds verse 28, I mean 29. Let the prophets speak two or three and let the other judge. Now, 
Some think that Paul is saying, if someone has the gift of prophecy, thus saith the Lord, let it be two or three times, and let another prophet judge what is said. That is how the great interpretation is for most commentators. But um, some commentators think that Paul is saying, let those who are thus saith the Lord or who have a teaching to give, he says, let it be two or three times in a gathering, and let the other, meaning the rest of the congregation, judge what is said. Instead of one prophet judging another, which is the common interpretation, some scholars say, he's saying, let it be done two or three times maybe, but let the congregation judge what is said. So if uh, Joe Smith stands up and says, uh, I have a teaching by the Spirit um, that every man should take on a new wife, Right? The congregation, knowing what was going on there, would say, no, we say no. That's, that would be the better interpretation. And then he says at verse 30, if anything be revealed to another that sits by, let the first hold his peace. So in other words, if someone is speaking or revealing a truth and another has a truth come to him, the other one shuts up, has a truth come to him. By revelation, a teaching, they, they're quiet. They hold their peace and remain silent until the other one has represented their truth. At verse 31, Paul explains why this order and system was to be in place. He says, for, you, for ye may all prophesy one by one that all may learn and all may be comforted. That's why he's Im implementing this order to the expression of spiritual gifts, which he is not saying are phony, which he's not saying are not real to them, which he's not saying aren't by the Spirit, but he is saying even though the Spirit gives them to you, you are in control of how you distribute them. That's a very different scene from what we get in some hyper-charismatic churches where, you know, it's like a demon possession and they just have to do it. And you have chaos barking in the spirit. And we've seen videos of this. People barking and laughing in the spirit and running crazy in the church. That's absolutely contrary to what Paul lays out here. So if you have, are searching for a true church, if you're searching, for, or not for a true church, but if you're searching for a place that is in harmony with the way the spirit works, according to what Paul says and you walk into one where it's a circus, reconsider that place, is what I'm telling you, because our audience is seen in other places besides just here. So again, he's appealing to order and edification. Listen, in all of this, Paul is showing that even in the abundance of the Spirit of God within individual people, Teachers, prophets, revelators, tongue speakers, we are in control of how we let those things out. And it verifies the two-way street that happens between God and human beings. There's a two-way street, and it's all present through the Scripture. God invites, God calls, we accept, we receive. God empowers, we choose. It's all through almost every line. As I'm going through and preparing the, I'm in the book of Mark. I've started with the book of Mark in the, in the preparation of the transversional apostolic record, which, uh, oh boy, uh, my daughters say, what's it like, dad? And I say, it's like 
someone taking a giant dump truck full of sand, pouring it on your front lawn, giving you a pair of tweezers, and saying sort them by color, size, and, uh, and it's maddening. It's, but it is so revealing and so interesting. And, and, and so uh, there's a two-way street. It's going on constantly. We like to suggest it's a sovereign domination. There's no way. It's a two-way street between God and humans. And we respond, he gives just like that constantly. And Paul is verifying that for us when it comes to spiritual gifts and the expression of them here in 1 Corinthians. So patiently wait your turn. Back at Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa years ago, Chuck Smith, uh, I only attended four services of that church in the entire two years I was there because I was in an office serving. But uh, they say, and they have videotapes, that back in the day, which was very charismatic, the hippie movement that started with Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa, and you have all the hippies who are really into, you know, the spirit, that they would get up suddenly and start dancing in the spirit, or another one would start speaking tongues, and they would start doing these things you read about, and Chuck Smith would just sit there, and if he was teaching, he'd just look at them and go, It's not that he didn't believe in the gifts of the Spirit, but he just shut it down, shut all of it down. And it would embarrass some of the people who were acting out because they were so full of their joy in life, but that's what he would do, and I thought that's very interesting. Paul was serious about being able for everybody to be benefited uh, by the expressions. And for that to be the case, there had to be an order which he implemented. This is great history. This is great Christian history that we can read about what was happening in the nascent church. Again, you have to ask yourself, as we read that history, do we take it uh, as described and apply it to us today? Do we justify it and say why some is applicable and why some isn't? And, or do we say it's been fulfilled and we live by the principles? At verse 32, and the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets There are several ways to understand this passage, and most Christians today choose to see Paul as saying that when a prophet speaks, another prophet judges what he speaks. Uh, Remember, in light of what he has just said about self-control in the face of spiritual gifts, I tend to think that Paul has simply added the idea that when a prophet has something to say or teach, the spirit that prompts that prophet to share or teach is subject to that prophet sharing it. It's subject to them deciding when and how to share it. That's why he says the spirit of the prophet is subject to that prophet. It's up to them to know the order and way that the edification would be best among the church. And he summarizes it at verse 33 and says, For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace as in all churches of the saints. There's the, the death blow to all of the stuff. Four, here's the reason I'm giving you all these instructions. He does, he's not the author of confusion, right? He's the author of peace. Peace. Irene. Now, in this vein or stream of thought, Paul provides us with our second chunk of Scripture. 34 and 35. 
We need to understand two things about these two verses. Why would Paul give these instructions to the church bride? And second, what stance on the board do you take with these two verses? I've set you up. I've said these are the stances that we have today when we read the Bible. And they're, they're pretty representational. I've set you up with them. And now we're going to cover two verses that Paul gives. What stance do you take? Let's read the passages and then answer the first question. Why would Paul say such a thing? What thing? Having established order and peace among the church there at Corinth, Paul now says, verse 34, Let your women keep silence in the churches. For it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as says the law, as also says the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. Now, this is the word of God. It's from the apostles. The actual literal stance. You're going to justify your literal stance in this case because of culture, because of ERA, Sonia Johnson. You're going to justify it? Or are you going to give it another reason why it doesn't apply? And if you give it that reason, you have to start applying that reason to everything. Or you go with the middle reason and you have a church that go to the airport and you see the Amish ladies. They, they stand by that one. They're on that end, the conservative end. Shut up. Ask your husband at home. Single ladies, I don't know what they do. Let's start off right here. The language, there's no ambiguity in this language. Okay? In fact, it is extremely objectifying, perhaps even misogynistic toward women. Listen to what he says. Let your women. <laughs> That's objectification if you ever. For it is not permitted for them, but they are commanded under obedience. If they will learn anything like they, them. I'm amazed he didn't say it. Let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women. Complete separate group that has an ownership that don't have rights, and there's no ambiguity in this, folks. So you meet a pastor who says, we teach the Bible, and they don't stick with this. They're, they're lying. That's harsh words, but they're lying. Because all you got to do is bring this up, and you say to your women, well, you know, yeah. well, what? This is from an apostle of the Lord speaking it in that day. So don't give me your well. You either do it, you justify it, or you see it in another light. I consulted a number, number of scholars on this passage. I tried to do that with all of them. And one of my favorites from a commentator I love writes, no rule in the New Testament is more positive than this. 
And however plausible may be the reasons which may be urged for disregarding it, and for suffering women to take part in conducting public worship, the authority of the Apostle Paul is positive and his meaning cannot be mistaken. End quote. Boom. Shut up. <laughs> the women are all laughing. You can't laugh! Right? Now, others suggest, well, Paul was talking about women teaching. But that's not what he says here. There's no ambiguity. It is a shame for women to speak. You have a question, really common is in questioning. A woman says, but I don't understand. No, Paul says, go to your husband when you get home and say, I didn't understand that. And then you have that fixed there. Okay. For every church and every pastor, there is an explanation. There's a passage ranging from the most conservative uh, and zealous to the most liberal and laid back. Now, we can say, well, so it's, this is obviously just something that we can just understand, right? But in reality, folks, this is giving us a really important thing to understand. And you can say, well, I'm just being reasonable. It's not reasonable in our day and age to talk about this. Well, it's not reasonable to take a lot of things in this day and age relative to the rest of Scripture and apply it. And then what you have is division. And then for every person who says it's okay for a woman to speak or teach in church, there is another group that says they're heretical. They are not true Christians. Do they not take the word of God seriously? And on and on and on. So it's really just representative. These two verses are just representative of a whole issue that we have not solved in 2,000 years. We have not solved it. So why would the Apostle of Jesus Christ say such a thing? Well, just to let you know, and you probably already realize it, in Judaism, this was the way it went. The man was the head of the house. And the man in the nation of Israel, women were to go to them outside of the synagogue and do their questioning. Paul was a Jew. Paul had a problem with women. It, it, they say, it's not in scripture, but they say he, his wife left him. So Paul may have had some personal issues with women too. We don't know. But it was definitely the way it was in the nation of Israel. Okay? There's a rabbi, he's so misogynistic, his name is Rabbi Eliezer. He wrote in uh, Bamadar Rabbah, section 9, uh, uh, 204. For those of you who look this stuff up, he says, quote, let the words of the law be burned rather than they should be delivered to women, end quote. So you're talking about a patriarchal, we get the revelation, we say what needs to be done, and women, you just be, keep yourself quiet. So Paul is echoing that clearly from that age. Uh, under the law, women were certainly relegated to subservient roles to their husbands, and this was all justified. Paul even justifies it himself in places that it was Adam who chose wrong, but it was Eve who was deceived. 
because she had the ability to be deceived, she was lesser in terms of revelation and having a place. You be quiet. Adam came first. He's the head. And that was the order of that day. Um, but as it is with men, things got taken to an extreme. The nation of Israel males, they decided to multiply wives unto themselves. I mean, if they're kind of like cattle, and if they kind of don't have any rights, and, you know, more make my life maybe better, <laughs> at least in some ways, I'm going to have more. So they started multiplying the wives, which was not the way it was with Adam and Eve, right? So men get involved. By the time Jesus comes along, it's not just the, the thing about the Sabbath that's messed up. It's not just all stuff about the law. It's not just stuff about loving neighbor and, and all that that's messed up by these guys. The ideas toward women was totally messed up. He was the emancipator of women. The emancipator of women. Gave them every right, single right, Jesus, that came with being a human being. Go back to the Garden of Eden prior to the fall. There was no, you know, hey, you know, you, you got to do this to Eve toward your husband. Husband dominate this. Before the fall, none of that. So with the second Adam being Christ bringing in the new spiritual kingdom, we are all exactly the same. There is no gender dif uh, differentiation between authority, between rights to speak, between being a human being, None of that. All gone. In fact, Paul says, there in Christ, there is no difference between male and female, bond and free, um, Greek and uh, Jew. No difference. That was unheard of. But we see the doctrine he teaches, but we also now are looking at the practice he teaches. And he has to teach this practice. And when we look at the history of what happened, we understand why he had to teach this practice. Remember, he was facing 1,500 years of misogyny. <laughs> We're talking about now, it's a 20-year period, 15-year period, 40-year period max, not even 40. It's still 10, 15, 20-year period where all that misogyny is still present. And suddenly the women are talking in church. And so, could women prophesy and teach? Could women prophesy and teach in the new age? Well, go back to the day of Pentecost. Peter's standing in front of 3,000 Jews plus, and he cites a prediction of that day from Joel. And in that prediction, he says, the Spirit of God will be poured out on women and men. That's what it says. That was a prophecy of the new age to come that they might prophesy, that they might teach. What? So what we do now is we say, okay, we have that. They can prophesy, and they can, but they can't do it in the church because of what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 14. Wake up. That, this was all for that period of time. This was for that church, which Paul and Peter and John and Andrew and Bart, all those guys we're making sure the gates of hell did not prevail against it, meaning that the world did not destroy that little church. And so in order to keep it together, 
in the face and the, and the sway of 1,500 years of history and everything else, Paul, in a letter to the church at Corinth, says, let your women be silent. It's a shame. It was a shame in that day. In fact, I doubt a woman or a man blinked, even blinked at that advice then. Probably like, oh, exactly. No problem, right? It was just, it was just known. It was how it was. Because it's in the, the apostolic record does not mean it has application to us like so many more passages that we ridiculously assign to our day and age. There's nothing going against the word of God for that. Nothing at all. All we got to look is at that end, the fulfillment end of it. So that's the context. That's the history. That was the norm. And for Paul, it was needed, needed. But the larger question that looms takes us back to the board. And it's extremely important because we want the truth. And we want to know why something's true, and we don't want rationalizations. So, to you again, either today the words of the apostles are still absolutely 100% viable to us, or we say we get to pick and choose. And based off culture and other factors that are going on in our lives today, we can remove some things that the apostles said, and we can mandate that some of the things they said is, are so vitally important, right? Or we can rationally suggest, in light of eschatology, that what they said is, has a historical basis, makes sense for them, and it's been fulfilled. My problem with the left is... It was clearly for that time. We can't go back on it and say that was wrong then. That was not wrong then. That's the way it was then. Um, add in that they had to remain unified like no other. I've no problem with what Paul actually says there in these two verses. As, as teaching history, I would have no problem if I was a history teacher teaching that in the 1950s, people referred to black people by a certain name. That's the historical reality. Was that name right? No. In our day, we would never do that. But that's the history. This is the history. So we don't say, the, we don't say Christianity is untrue. Look what it says about women, which is what the atheists do. We say that's the history. Look at the 1,500 years, right? And so we move from that point. My problem with the middle stance is it allows everyone to pick and choose. There's no model, there's no viable justification for the choices other than preference, other than preference. And, uh, and so it is uh, really untenable because everyone has a different preference. And then the right stand over here, uh, it makes the most sense because of eschatology. And there is no difference between male and female. Women don't need to have their heads covered. And if their heads are uncovered, they don't need to have their heads shaved, which is something else we've read in chapter 11. 
Jesus promised to come and rescue the bride of that generation so the gates of hell wouldn't prevail against it. The apostles expected him to rescue the bride they had called from the people who were gathered together, the called out. And the descriptions of the faith, uh, once the church bride was taken by the apostles, have absolutely zero application to us. So to me, the people who approach the faith at the far left are spiritually barbaric. They are actually physically, religiously barbaric. Um, though they are true to the word. I can't, you can't say they're not true to the word. They are just spiritually barbaric. And those who see the Bible's content as... Uh, as uh, open to spiritual application to us, it makes so much more sense. Our last chunk, verses 36 to 40, it's where Paul says, what? He starts with what? Came the word of God out from you? Or came it to you only? If any man thinks himself a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. But if any man be ignorant, let him be ignorant. Wherefore, brethren, covet to prophesy and forbid not to speak with tongues. Let all things uh, be done decently and in order. So back to verse 36, where Paul now says, what? Came the word of God out from you or came it to you only? It seems like to us a sarcastic question. What he's saying is, hey, church at Corinth, are you the mother uh, land of the, of the word of God? In, did, did God establish his kingdom uh, here in Corinth? Are you the Jerusalem, in other words? Did it all come out of you as to what uh, is supposed to be happening? You're doing things that aren't present anywhere else, and you're acting like they're all justifiable. Did it all come out from you? Now, it sounds um, sarcastic, but it's probably just the Hebrew, Hebrew way of writing. It probably is. After laying this down, because they were apparently in chaos, he adds, probably realizing that, some truth does come out of Corinth. He says, or came to you only. So he begins, says, did it all come out of you? And then he probably thinks, well, some truth has come out of Corinth. So then he says, does the truth come to you only? Do you have the right as the body, as the church there under apostolic rule in this day and age, get to make up your own rules? And this would be a claim against subjective Christianity. This would be something that would say, Paul even said to them, you don't get to make your own rules. You're doing something that has nothing to do with what was done. But that again is appealing to a faulty reasoning. In scripture, when God writes upon your heart and upon your mind, you are responsible for your faith. This was the church bride. Don't mix that up. We read today as individual believers and we see what the spirit is saying to us as God writes on our hearts. They were under apostolic rule, right? So why would Paul say this? It's because they were making up their own rules and doing what they wanted and it wasn't beneficial. And then he adds a tremendous throwdown at verse 37. If any man thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. You know what he did there? He took total apostolic power. Listen, someone thinks they're a prophet. Someone thinks they can speak in tongues. Someone has the gift of healing or miracles. Let them acknowledge that what I'm writing is of God. 
So he totally says, you guys are out there doing your thing. You look to me and you, you admit, if you really have this spirit, you admit that I'm in charge. If they wouldn't, then he, what Paul is saying is you don't have the spirit. That was a sheer power play on Paul's part, right? My friends, apostolic throwdown right there. If you think you have the spirit, you would definitely agree with me. That is a power play, right? But he makes it. He was called out of the predominant faith. At tremendous risk of his reputation in life, he was trained by Christ, and he had the skill and ability to articulate everything Jesus had trained him to do, and he could, he could explain the Tanakh in relative to the new faith. He could explain it to the Gentiles. He could converse with the Jews. And uh, he then, of course, suffered being beaten and shipwrecked and, and put in prison and all other manner of injustices. And he was, he was taking it and he threw down. You guys at Corinth, if you don't agree that I am giving you the right commands, you don't have the spirit of God. We hear that kind of thing happening in religions today, right? But it's happening by believers and pastors who don't have this same apostolic power. This was, this was, it was okay for Paul to do. That's a thumbs up for Paul to do. It's okay for John to do. John did the same thing. He did it in the first epistle of John 4, 6. He says, we are of God. He that knows God hears us. He that is not of God hears not us. Hereby we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. That's an apostolic throwdown. If, if someone believes in what we, the apostles, us, are saying, they have the spirit of truth. If they reject us, they have the spirit of error. The difference is, I can't say that to you because I'm not an apostle. I wasn't specially trained. I wasn't specially beaten. And I didn't especially give my life or haven't given it yet for the faith. They did. So it's telling us indirectly here, we have something unique with these apostles at that time. They were doing something, writing things, saying things that only they had the power to do. If a pastor says, if you disagree with me, you're not with God. That is such a, a, a they're usurping the apostolic power that was there. So now we have to ask, how does the apostolic power apply to us today? If it was present then, is it still, are we going to justify it or has it changed? You see why it's important to look at that is we're reading the apostolic words. So everyone who takes that far left stance and says the apostles, their power when they wrote the word is as viable today as it was then. Gosh, darn it. They better be obeying everything the apostles said. But the majority don't. That's a problem, okay? The LDS, the Mormons, they have a stopgap measure in all this. They figured it out. Joseph Smith, smart dude. He says, there was an apostasy. The, the apostles over there at that far end, they were important, obviously. Look, at they were telling you, you, you agree with me or you're out, right? They laid down the law, but that power was lost. 
And so therefore, we had to have living apostles restored to the earth with a priesthood that they apparently held, and their words will trump dead ones. And so, because we live in cultural times, and so we avoid this problem of women speaking in church. What the Mormons say is, listen, Paul certainly had the right to say women should be quiet in church because of all the historical significance, but that time has changed. God still loves us, so he doesn't expect us to rely on that book of what the apostles were saying to them. Then, apostasy comes. We have the stopgap. We'll provide you with 12 men and a prophet who will keep current. And they'll realize, well, women can speak in church. The Spirit telleth me. No more than one piercing. We can get, we, you know, things like that. And it just continues on and on. If this, if it's, if it's an apostolic church, the Mormons are right. You see. So if you, if you look at it, and you say the apostles' words then don't have the same application literally to us today, and you take this stance, the LDS have put a stopgap measure in there that makes sense. And so they've appealed to that, and it's worked. God loves us as much today as he did then. Times have changed. He, we have apostles and prophets who will teach us what to say and do, right? So I would accept it. It makes much more sense than the hypocritical justification road. If we're going to call the, the Bible the word of God. Much more. Come to reality, folks. Wake the heck up. This is absolutely what we're talking about here, right? Unfortunately, or fortunately, all the other passages that are used, besides this little justification for apostles, but their, their, just, their idea of, a, of an apostasy, their idea of a priesthood, their idea of temple marriages, their idea of all that, there's such hocus pocus that this one thing that they've done with the apostles makes no sense either. So just because they're right in one area and have a, an inroad in one area doesn't mean that they're right in all areas. So Paul is throwing down on them as an apostle in that day and had the right to, and he tells them if someone's truly inspired, then they'll agree with him. But then he shuts it down. He says in verse 38, but if any man be ignorant, let him be ignorant. He just said, okay, I've given you my word. There's liberty in this. I love it. If anyone's ignorant, in other words, if there's anyone ignorant of my authority and they don't agree, let them be that way. Remember Jesus said, let the church grow up as weeds and as, uh, as wheat and as weeds. Because at that last day, the angels will come and separate it all out. So Paul is saying the same thing here. If someone's ignorant of me and my authority and they don't agree with me, it's all right. Let them be ignorant. The, the last day is coming. The wheat and the tares will be all sifted together and the angels will bind up that which doesn't belong and get rid of it. And the only thing that will last will be taken by Christ. Paul doesn't, he's not, he's not worried about that at all. But he's just saying, let them do it at their own peril. Let the ignorant be ignorant. Wherefore, brethren, he summarizes covet to prophesy and forbid not to speak with tongues. And then after saying that, he says, and let all things uh, be done decently and in order. Again, for the effectiveness of teaching today, where does all of it sit? Where are you? Where should you be? Where are we? Don't allow your 
prejudices to guide your decisions on that. Let the facts speak to you. That's what we deal with when we're talking. We're talking about the real things that are going on with these different positions. So when he says, let everything be done decently in order, we can summarize chapter 14 in tongues with the following. Whatever is done in the apostolic church of that day should be edifying to everybody there. Help convert non-believers, help strengthen believers. Let the focus on the believers be teaching. Let the focus on non-believers be tongues. Tongues were not to be done in the church. I'd rather speak 10,000 words in my own language of instruction than five in an unknown tongue. Keep that as a good rule of thumb. Use the tongues out in the community where people are amazed by that and they then come and believe. Let everything be done decently and in order. If there's tongues spoken, make sure they're interpreted by somebody with a spirit of interpretation. And we're looking at the history of the nascent apostolic church here. I would, I would guess if you're going to follow that model and you're going to say it all still applies and you're not going to take any exceptions to that, then you would stand over there and you make sure if you're in a tongue-speaking church that one person speaks a foreign tongue and another person interprets what they say. And then finally, he firmly establishes that he has the authority in the church in that day. He slams it down to the point where he says, if you disagree with me, you don't have the spirit. I am the one setting the rules here. And we enter into 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, years ago, I got my laptop ripped off years ago. Well, not ripped. Yeah, it was ripped off, but it was full of, it was almost a book on 1 Corinthians 15. It was probably 300 pages on this chapter because it adds so much to our understanding of so many things relative to the gospel. So as a preface, we're going to end today by reading through together. I'm not going to comment on it. We're just going to read through as the uh, appetizer for going through it verse by verse starting next week. Okay, you ready? Moreover, so he's adding, Brethren, I declare unto you the gospel, which I preached unto you, which also you have received and whereby you stand, which also, excuse me, by which also you are saved, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in him in vain. So much right there. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto the present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me also, as if born out of due time. Unbelievable insight there. For I am the least of the apostles, that I am not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace was bestowed upon me, was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. 
Yet not I, but the grace of God which was in me. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, verse 12. If Christ be preached that he rose not from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he, whom he raised not up, if so be the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised? And if Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain, ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of most men most, we are of uh, men most miserable. Verse 20. But now, is Christ risen from the dead? And become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end. When he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet, the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death, for he has put all things under his feet. This is like a parenthetical reference, but when he says all things are put under him, it is obvious that he is accepted which did put all things under him, in parenthetical reference. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead? If the dead rise not at all, why are they then baptized for the dead? And why stand we in jeopardy every hour? I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die daily. If after the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it me? If the dead rise not, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Awake to righteousness and sin not. For some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Verse 35. But some men will say, How are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? You fools. That which thou sowest is not made alive unless it dies. And that which thou sowest, thou sowest not the body that shall be, but bare grain, 
It may chance of wheat or some other grain, but God giveth it a body as it has pleased him, and to every seed his own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh for men, another flesh of beasts, another of fishes, another of birds. There also are celestial bodies and bodies terrestrial, but the glory of the celestial is one, the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars. For one star differeth, differeth from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a living spirit. Howbeit that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earthly. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As is the earthly, such are also they that are earthy. As is the heavenly, such are they that are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the earthly, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither does corruption inherit corruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at that last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, forasmuch as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And with that, we'll continue on with verse 1 of chapter 15 next week. Insights, questions, comments to David. Thank you, brother. This is David. Uh, I... I think that in this chapter 14, when he's talking about tongues, he, in creating these laws, these rules for them to follow, it takes the corruption aspect out. Mm. So as, as they're saying, you know, you've got to uh, have an interpreter, and you, the interpreter has to tell the group. Yeah. 
so it, it, all of the fraud that could have been existing, and I think it must have been, huh. which is why he wrote the rules. He's not accusing the men of anything, mm -hmm. but in creating this, these rules, he's preventing any corruption of that. Great observation. Love it, yeah. Love it. Kathy, <clears throat> um, speech, speech. <laughs> I just was going to tell you what I did in the when I was Mormon. <laughs> they come and ask me if I would speak in church, and I, you know, they assigned you what you could speak on, which to me was very frustrating because I thought, what if the Spirit wanted me to say something else? <laughs> but so I thought, well. I didn't want to say no because, you know, it was a sin to say no because if you're asked to do something, it's from the Lord. You know, that's what they teach you. <laughs> so I got up. I probably didn't speak more than a minute and a half at the most. I st stood up and said how grateful I was to be there. And I said, I agree with what Paul said. Women should not speak in the church. So yeah. I'm, not, I'm not going to speak. I'm just going to say I love the Lord and I'm grateful that for what he did for me and I closed and I sat down. Wow. So that's <laughs> was awesome. Pretty gutsy, I think, but Very. at the time I was just so frustrated, but that is what, you know. And I just believe that women can speak in church and all of that's all gone and I agree with the fulfilled. Yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> so awesome, I just go Kathy. by the spirit. Thank you. John, my name is Ray. I have a hard time understanding why Paul even made that comment about women uh, to be silent. It mentions in the scripture that it, that was part of the old law. And I can understand that if you go back and read the Old Testament, there was a number of places where it said women should be silent. But the Savior did away with the law. He fulfilled the law. So why did Paul, is he guilty of that thing that you got on the board, justifying the fact that he felt like uh, because of maybe some personal uh, things in his life that he didn't realize that that was a law and that the Savior, as you mentioned, had emancipated the women and give them all rights? Mm -hmm. Again, Ray, if we look, remember his job was to keep the church together so the gates of hell would not prevail against it. That was his job. And every, all his epistles talk about Christ coming to take his bride. Coming. And so where Jesus gives us the truth, Paul is dealing with the people who are still learning to come into the truth. And I think it was, he did step back into that because it was necessary to keep the order somehow there. Because if you just add in all the spiritual manifestations and then you throw in the fact that women too, are, and that may have upset all the men who are used to women not talking in holy places, so there could have been just a major issue he's trying to solve. And because it was part of that Old Testament, he justified it as, look, let's stick to the standard of what was. We've only gotten rid of it 20 years ago, 15 years ago. That's when Jesus came. It's gotten rid of. The problem 
I think that maybe you have is that Paul doesn't say, and this is for right now for these circumstances, for Jesus made all of us equal in his sight. He doesn't add that. So that's why we have to take the other passages where Paul says that, that there is no difference between men and women, uh, Jew and Gentile, bond and free in Christ. So you have to balance it. And that's why we take the whole word of God in our analysis and not just those single passages because it can be disturbing. He sounds misogynistic. So, you, so obviously he understood the, the law. Oh, but if anyone understood he, the law, he, he was justifying this teaching because of the environmental situation. And so many of the Jews still believed in the women being silent. Yeah. He does the same thing. He rails against circumcision for justification of the flesh. And then he goes and he circumcises Timothy so he'll be acceptable to the Jews. Paul was a master of using whatever necessary to keep things peaceful. And where we have passages where he's just railing on circumcision. He says, you're not even covered by grace if you get circumcised. And he goes and he circumcised Timothy. He's paradoxical and it makes him, makes him very questionable. But I think he knew what he was doing and it was for that really short period of time. Hope that helps, my brother. I maintain a different uh, line of thought. <clears throat> the people that taught the church, that ran the church for hundreds of years after the return of Christ, it, it, provided you believe in that, <clears throat> but after the destruction of, Israel, of Jerusalem, they maintained, ran the church, and needed to control the people. I believe they put that in there okay. so they could maintain the church. Well, the problem is, is that manuscript evidence doesn't support that view. And even Bart Ehrman, who would uh, uh, attack, would, uh, would probably agree with you if there was any merit to it. If we could show it was inserted by the Catholics or whatever, uh, some scribe that wanted to keep order. It's a great view because that has been done in other ways. But in this case, I'm not sure that it, it is. But you could be right, you know. Susie, I was questioning the fact that when you have a question for your husband or you have something that you have and your husband doesn't know, what do you do then? I mean, where, where is that going with that? I mean, exactly. <laughs> I was just like, yeah, exactly. if I know more than him, what is that? You know, I, I just was saying that. Doesn't make sense, does no. it? But now take yourself back to... Take yourself back to that age where it was a patriarchal society and the men knew the law and the men for 1500 years have been studying the law and women didn't have a role in scholastic stuff, right? So it made sense for him to be able to just maybe hope that the man would understand something. But in our day and age, forget it. Women, they, they, they can beat men to death on theology. Doesn't make sense, does it? Right. So it's a really good point. Yeah. Yeah. I know that in that culture that the women were separated by the men when they went to, cert to meetings. They were separated by a, a wall, a temporary wall, um, and they weren't allowed to speak or participate. And, but once in a while the women would shout because if they didn't understand or agree, they would yell some stuff out. And so then the meeting would be disrupted and, and uh, people weren't you know, able to hear what the rabbi was saying. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, they sh like what? Ah! Yeah. 
Yeah, when I was I visited Israel a couple years ago, and we were shown that that wow. this, yeah, there was a partition that separated the groups. So I think that Paul was probably really concerned that this thing didn't get out of out of order. Hmm. You know, let's keep it separate. Let's just keep going the way we are. And if you need to ask questions, hold off until you guys are out of this church or hmm. out of the synagogue. And then you guys can have your conversation, and he'll tell you what was said and explain it to you. Hmm. So there was some order there, but I I think I kind of wonder if Paul, if every word in that Bible is inspired. You wonder. You wonder how much of his own opinion about things entered into what he said, and I tend to think that that is the case, yeah. to some extent. And yeah. so that's maybe he. On one hand, was saying, "Don't be circumcised," but we're gonna we're gonna do this. Um, and there was always that little bit of wiggle worm for him to. Well, I didn't mean to say that word, but uh, but yeah. uh, you know, for him to be flexible, you know. Yeah. In yeah. in his teaching. Like any good lawyer, they can move around within the law, right? Uh, really good point, Danny. And in fact, uh, in Second Timothy three sixteen, I think where it says, "All Scripture is given by inspiration for the edification and all that." Uh, the best Greek interpretation is anything that is scripture is given for the interpretation. And where we dogmatically will say all scripture and apply it to this, it's really anything that is scripture. And if we come across something that like this where you're in question, the spirit can move you to say, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going with that at all. Really good point. Excellent. Oh, wait, uh, uh, our brother Ray has another follow-up. Isn't that the reason the scriptures say, prove all things and choose that which is good? Amen, brother. Great. Amen. Yeah. Test all things, hold fast to what is good, or prove all things. Excellent. All right. Do you have a question, ma'am? Oh. <laughs> I thought it was just a lazy teenage hand wave. God bless you guys all on your uh, Thanksgiving holidays and whatever the, that might include if you celebrate that. And uh, just to let you know, I uh, was just informed by Michelle of this. The girl, little girl we've been praying for, Gracie, passed away. Uh, we've been praying for her for over a year. And uh, cancer took its toll and took her life. So uh, let's remember her family uh, in prayer. Uh, can't imagine what it's like to lose a child. And um, so uh, we've lost little Gracie, who is in the arms of our king, I am certain. And uh, let's go from there. Lord, we uh, trust in you and trust in your ways, knowing that we all are going to exit. But when a child goes, our heart breaks. We didn't know Gracie personally, but we've been praying for her as a group. And uh, obviously your ways are uh, higher than ours and you know what you're doing. So we just pray now for Gracie's family uh, we pray for Penny and Ben and Cheyenne and her little and her sister Charlotte and uh, to lose a sibling to cancer. We pray that um, through the sorrow and the mourning and the difficulty of death that uh, somehow you will be made known and you will be able to encourage and uplift them. Even your son at the death of Lazarus, knowing he was going to raise him, wept. It's a painful thing for us, Lord to experience death of people we love, to see death around us. It hurts us. It causes us to wonder about this life, especially in the, when cancer is involved with a child. 
And so we are left here, uh, the parents are left with such pain. And we just pray, we pour our hearts out. Everybody here understands this, that the death of a child is painful and brutal. And so we lift this family up to you. We gather them up in our hands and uh, we just lift them up to you. And we pray that you will comfort them, especially, especially at this time of Thanksgiving. And um, they're going to gather without that child. And um, God, it's just hard. It's hard to get through this life with these things. You know it. Your son knows it. So we appeal to him. And uh, with trust and with faith, looking to you, uh, we pray for them. And we pray for Phyllis and for Bob and Tammy and Lynn and Diane and for everyone else who's ongoing sicknesses that we've been praying for for Liz and we pray for those at this time of the year who've lost others we pray for the Wangsgard family who lost their mom and wife uh, to cancer last year and we pray for others who have been in our midst and those who are not we just seek you we seek to be grateful to be humble to walk with uh, eyes look into the eternal picture that you'll strengthen us and you'll keep us living quietly and humbly in your spirit and that it will manifest in love at all times. We love you, Lord, and pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.